If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where I share practical and simple tips and techniques to help you take back control of your mental health and life. Get ready for an amazing episode because today I have a special guest who has an amazing story and some amazing advice on addiction recovery. In the studio with me today is Dr. Adi Jaffe. Dr. Adi Jaffe is a nationally recognized expert on mental health, addiction, relationships, and shame. He was a UCLA lecturer in the psychology department for the better part of a decade and was the executive director and co-founder of one of the most progressive mental health treatment facilities in the country. Dr. Jaffe's work and research focus on changing the way Americans think about and deal with mental health issues. He is passionate about the role of shame in destroying lives and aims to greatly reduce the stigma of mental health in this country. Dr. Jaffe's views on addiction and his research on the topic have been published in dozens of journals and online publications, and he has appeared on numerous television shows and documentaries discussing current topics in addiction and the problem of addiction as a whole. Dr. Jaffe now writes a blog on Psychology Today and several other online and print resources. His goal is to bring the latest knowledge about addiction to the people who could benefit from it the most, those who are suffering because of it. His writing combines personal experience with a decade's worth of fine detail research regarding the mechanisms involved in the addictive process. He has appeared on several television shows including Good Morning America, The Dr. Oz Show, The Doctors and Larry King Now and in numerous documentaries discussing current topics in addiction. In this episode, Dr. Jaffe and I discuss his personal journey with addiction which resulted in imprisonment, how to help someone who is struggling with addiction how addictions develop, why abstinence is ineffective, how to find healing if you are struggling with addiction, and so much more. Before we begin, I want to thank everyone for tuning in once again to listen to my podcast. And a big thank you to everyone who's left a review. If you liked today's episode, I would love to hear your thoughts on what resonated with you. And I would love to hear any feedback, questions or comments. Also, one last thank you to everyone who has shared this podcast with friends and family and on social media. Keep listening and keep sharing. Elliot, so I'm so excited that you're here today. I, I love what you've done. I've read your book, listened to your podcast. You've just got such a great insight into such an important topic, and that excites me. And I just think people all around the world need to understand how you have experienced and seen addiction. So I'm thrilled you're here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me the platform and having this really important conversation. It's so important. Thank you so yeah. much. 
Well, I know you've got such an interesting story. So mm. do you mind? St- I know you've shared it a thousand times. And I, I, before you do, I love what you said in your book. This, this book of yours is fantastic, by Thank the way. Thank you. Thank the, you so much. The New Approach for Abstinence, Overcoming Addiction Without Myth, Shame, Judgment, or Rules. We'll have the link in the show notes as well. It's something that people should definitely pick up. Simple, easy, practical. I love it. It's perfect. But you said something interesting, how you were encouraged by people not to tell your story. Oh, all the time. Wasn't that, that, that so? Can you talk about that? How and why, and then tell us your story. Certainly, certainly. So on the other side, on a D version 2.0, as I call my life now, I went back to school after about a five to six year break. I know we were talking about UCLA before. I got my undergrad at UCLA, and then I took a, a long break that we'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to school, I was a really great student. I'd never been that good of a student. I was essentially a 4.0, perfect A student. And... One day I was sitting in front of one of my advisors, a person who, you know, from academic mm-hmm. careers, you sit with these advisors and you write papers with them and you do work with them mm-hmm. and you develop a relationship. And so mm-hmm. I was sitting in the room with him and I was considering starting to write this online blog called All About Addiction. And I was telling him that I wanted to tell part of my personal story. And he very emphatically and very specifically said to me, I think that's a bad idea. You're an academic you do research. Mm-hmm. And if you start telling people about things that happened in your past that are relevant to your work, they're going to start thinking of you as somebody who has a mission versus somebody who can be objective. Mm. And I took it to heart. I didn't do the work. I didn't write. I didn't get public about my past for two more years. And I didn't know it then, but I know it well now. Everybody who's worth their salt has a mission. Mm. There is nobody who's actually purely objective. Mm -hmm. We all have perspectives on life. That perspective is informed by our previous experiences and the experiences of people around us, what we've seen, what we've heard. Mm -hmm. And we develop a way of looking at the world. And our objectivity comes from, hopefully, an awareness of that Mm -hmm. and an understanding that my job is not to only look for information that confirms what I know, Mm -hmm. but rather also to look for information that disconfirms it or that that fights against my intrinsic notions of Mm -hmm. what's right and what's wrong. And that by combining all of that together, I get to have a relatively objective view of the world. But we all have a perspective and we all have a mission. And if you don't, Mm -hmm. I already know one of the problems you have in life. If you don't have something you care enough about to go to bat for it, then I know one of the things that you're struggling with every day. And so... It took me a couple of more years to get to write that. But now I would argue that probably most of the people who know me know about me because at some point they heard my story and said, wait, there's there's got to be something more to somebody who's Mm -hmm. gone through all of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, telling your story is not easy because there will always be people like that Mm -hmm. who start using elements of your history and faults. My story is full of misdeeds and, and crimes and really Mm -hmm. inappropriate behavior for a responsible adult who's supposed to be guiding others through their lives. But it's what taught me to get to this place. And so I'm not ashamed of it anymore. It is what I, it's your experiences that have shaped you. And it's part of your, you know, your learning experience. You come with so much more to be able to help others. But it's so interesting that you had that advice because it's also what I've been told and it's Mm. taken me years for people to to actually must train myself not to be this academic and this clinician and stand up there and just give information to people and tell them how to do it and keep me away from the story because that was my training. Yeah. So you know to break through that and, 
actually reveal your authenticity and your honesty and that life's tough and that things happen is so important because people listen and then you add that to your fact that you have the degrees and the experience it makes you more authentic that despite that you achieve that and you say that in your book you say how people see that your story and how you've achieved it gives them hope yeah so that's really exciting i mean i think there's something inherent in that message right don't tell your story which is there's something wrong with that part of you. Uh, yeah. That's, he didn't say it, but, it but it's that, there it? in the background. It yeah. says, look, there are parts of you that other people should know because if yeah. they know about those parts of you, they'll think less of you. Mm. And when you take that on, and I've taken that on many, many times in my life in many different contexts, part of what you're saying is I am not okay. Mm. Right. If people find out who I really am, they will devalue me. They will look down at me. And part of the work that I do, and you know, uh, we'll talk about some of these in terms of fighting shame and those elements yeah. of the work that I do, really focuses on that singular element that if you write yourself off, even parts of you, because those parts of you are you, mm. if you write those elements of yourself off, you're doing a disservice to who you are. You're doing a disservice to what you can achieve because there's always a part of your life that you're hiding. Mm. There's always a part of yourself that... When you walk out into the street or when you go to a group of friends to dinner or you go to a restaurant or you go on, on the lecture circuit and you mm. go to speak, you're getting up there and you're saying, yeah, but I'm pretending. Mm. And these people don't know that I'm pretending because I do a really good job of mm. pretending. But if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't come to my lecture. They wouldn't buy my books. They wouldn't come have dinner with me. They wouldn't whatever date me, whatever the thing is that is going on in your life. And so... When you realize that's not true and you open that part up, mm-hmm. you know, there's this phrase, sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? When you open yourself up yeah. to that criticism, look, I'm not going to lie to everybody listening. There will be people who will leave you. Yeah. But they're leaving you because you thought they thought you were somebody else. They're leaving you because they were mm-hmm. buying that masked costumed version mm-hmm. of you. They didn't like who you were in the first place anyway. And so... Yeah, and you've maybe challenged them too. You've made them look at something in themselves that they don't like. Surely. And I look at that as clearing space. Mm -hmm. It's okay. It's good. Get rid of some relationships in your life that are not serving you and maybe actually are causing you to feel like you need to hide. Mm -hmm. It'll open up space for the people who need to come into your life. This episode is brought to you by Seed, a scientifically validated next-generation probiotic. More and more research is showing the importance of a healthy gut for optimal mental and brain health. Because a healthy gut is so important, I have really put some time and effort into researching the best probiotic for myself and my family. And Seed was a clear winner for all of us. Seed's daily symbiotic contains 24 unique strains of beneficial bacteria and three powerful prebiotic compounds that have been clinically studied to deliver a wide range of benefits. I have always struggled with bloating but since taking seeds daily symbiotic i have really noticed a big improvement in my digestion i don't get that uncomfortable bloat after each meal i cannot recommend seed enough and just for my listeners seed is offering 15 percent off your first month of the daily symbiotic just visit seed.com and use the code mental mess the link and details will also be in the show notes oh i love that that's incredible well 
it's having now laid that foundation. Tell us your story. It's fascinating. I've listened to actually listened to it a couple of times now. It's amazing. Yeah, I've told a lot of times. I always have to find a different, a slightly different way to tell it so that I don't. Um, Are you tired of telling it yet, or do you still enjoy telling it? I'm not very good. You're, you're an academic, so you'll understand this. I'm not very good about making the thing about me. Yes, so we've been trained out of it's been trained out of us. So in that sense, it's kind of like okay, wh- where do we get to the important stuff? Because I was there. I was there for the whole experience. And it doesn't, it sounds transformational when I talk about it in a five minute segment. But, you know, to go through it for 12 years is a very different experience. But I grew up in a really nice household. I grew up in Israel. My parents were together. They they had their issues like all Mm -hmm. families, but they were together. I had a younger sister I loved, but I was always uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I remember, I just remember this recently because now I have three of my own kids and I'm in elementary school even, which was right next door to my house, I would come home sometimes with these crippling stomach pains. Mm. They literally had me doubled over. I couldn't stand up and I would almost kind of crawl, like walk over, hunched over into my apartment. I was a latchkey kid, so I always had a key and I could always mm-hmm. go back home. And I would just lay in bed in pain until it would pass and I would go back. And I I think I had that deep a level mm. of anxiety even back then. I just didn't know to call it anxiety. Mm. And by the time junior high showed up, I was relatively popular, but I was always anxious. I never felt like I fit in. I never felt like I was enough. And so I had to find ways to try to make up for that. So the whole class clown thing, I was pretty smart, so I did well in in school. But I had all these ways to cover up for this feeling of not being enough. And then my parents moved us to the other side of the world. We moved from Israel to Chicago. Now I was a foreign kid with a weird accent. My English was pretty imperfect. Nobody can tell now, but it it wasn't that great back then. And, you know, we're in the U.S. right now. The U.S. is probably in its worst phase of mm-hmm. accepting foreigners. But yeah. being a foreigner anywhere is not a really comfortable mm-hmm. feeling. So I felt out of sorts. And I was now, now it was proven to me I didn't fit in with the cool, good kids. So I was I was on the outskirts and I discovered alcohol during that time. And alcohol solved a lot of my problems. Mm-hmm. I felt weird around girls. I didn't know how to talk to them without stumbling and, and feeling awkward. I didn't feel like I was as cool as the other guys. When I drank and somebody gave it to me in an overnight sleep kind of camp situation, you know, three or four little gulps of vodka that tasted terrible going down. Mm -hmm. And within 20 minutes, I just didn't care. I could talk to anybody. I could say anything. I don't even know if what I said was relevant or not, but it didn't Mm -hmm. matter. And Mm -hmm. what I wanted was for that anxiety, that anxious voice to go away in my head. And so from that point on, alcohol became a pretty regular part of my life. Every weekend, pretty much, I go to friends and I would drink. And I felt great. I felt mm-hmm. comfortable. I could dance. I could sing with people. It was amazing. So fast forward a couple of years, we move again. and But now I know the trick. Mm-hmm. If I just find the kids who are drinking, I can drink with them and everything is good. I'm still in high school. And now I found weed and cannabis or marijuana played the next role. Happened the exact same way. In sleepover camp, somebody handed me a handle of vodka. And I did it because I didn't want to stick out. Weed came the same way. We were sitting around a circle and this girl that I liked handed me a joint. I wasn't going to say no because I liked her and I didn't want to be awkward. So I smoked the joint. And now I, now I was a weed smoker. But by mm-hmm. the time two years passed and I got to college, I was smoking weed every day and I was drinking every day. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize at the time was I had discomfort. I wasn't learning how to deal with the discomfort. I was learning how to mask it. Mm, and That's so good. You weren't learning how to deal with the discomfort. You were learning how to mask it. I just didn't care. When I was stoned enough or drunk enough, what you did didn't matter. And as long as it didn't matter and didn't register for me, I felt okay. Mm. 
got to college, broke up. I had a two-year-long relationship in high school that ended my first semester in college. I went into a depression, mm-hmm. and then every all the wheels came off. I was already in a pretty bad place. My parents and I were fighting all the time. They hated me. I was a terrible student at that mm-hmm. point because I just did drugs all the time. But now I was in a depression, and so I looked for anything that would eliminate mm-hmm. the feelings. Again, right? I didn't know how to feel uncomfortable. I was really good at covering it. So I looked for whatever the next thing is that would uncover it. Mm-hmm. And cocaine played a role in that. Ecstasy played a role in that. A lot of hallucinogen played a role. And then I found meth. Meth, which is like a older, dirtier cousin to Adderall or mm-hmm. stimulant medication for um, ADHD and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. It did the job. It completely numbed out feelings for me. I, It's as if I didn't have feelings. And that was perfect for me. It worked really, really well. So that started a three to four year daily heavy addiction to to methamphetamine. I was still doing the other drugs on the side, mm-hmm. but meth was my, it was like my crutch. It was mm-hmm. the thing that allowed me to walk looking normal with two broken legs in the mm-hmm. world. My drug habits were expensive. So I started selling drugs in order mm-hmm. to be able to deal with the hundreds of dollars a day I was spending. I got pretty good at dealing the drugs. And so I ended up with, this little entrepreneurial kind of, you know, business. Like I had business. four guys selling for me. I was, de- you know, I was making tens of thousands of dollars a month, partying the whole time. It seemed great. Mm-hmm. But again, like I was saying, I was... Um, it still didn't satisfy. Completely isolated. though. I was always alone. Even in the room full of people, I was alone. Everybody who knew me liked me for my drugs or my money. Mm-hmm. Another element to my head that was always mm-hmm. telling me I wasn't enough. Now I knew why they liked me. And as long as I had the money and the drugs, everybody was, was still around. I didn't know how to leave. I just didn't know how to leave that world behind because now I had some cachet. And so I kept selling. I kept using. I mean, I was literally, I had videos. I don't know if anybody's seen Scarface. Have you ever seen the movie Scarface? No, I haven't. One of the last scenes is that he lives in this really, really fancy mansion he bought for, mm-hmm. for himself from the drug dealing. And he has video cameras everywhere. Mm-hmm. So he's watching these guys that are slowly coming to his house, infiltrating it to kill him. Mm-hmm. And he's just doing coke the whole time. I sat in my studio. I would do drugs. I would look at the video cameras, showing me the cameras outside and inside mm-hmm. my studio. And I would just get, do drugs all day. That's literally all I did. Mm-hmm. And eventually I got found out. I had a motorcycle accident. I was carrying a lot of drugs on me. The cops searched me. They found those drugs. And then they went to my house and searched and found mm-hmm. more drugs. And I ended up, you know, with a SWAT team arrest and, uh, in jail waiting wow. trial, almost a million dollar bail. Mm-hmm. I had a gun at that point. You know, I'm like a, I mean, you, you see me, you're, we're here in person. I'm like 152 pounds. My goodness. I'm this little guy, but I got held up at gunpoint. I've been robbed and all that. So I bought my own gun and wow. I literally got led into this life that was so far from my physician dad and my yeah. human resource manager no, and a yeah. bank mom and my sister who was a, you know, in her medical school. It's like I created this alternative universe. Wow. Incredible. I ended up in jail. And there was, everybody thought that that would be kind of the moment of change, but I still had to fall and trip a few times. I ended up going to rehab, relapsing in that first rehab, going homeless for a little bit. And then- Can I stop you one second? Yeah, of course. Just, just in terms of that you went, that you thought that would be the epiphany moment, the jail thing. Yeah. But you still had- and I love that. I don't want to stress that with people that it was still time. There was still a process. Mm, that's so important. I was in jail and I remember a phone call with my dad. So my bail was $750,000, which in the US means you can post 10% of that, which is $75,000, mm-hmm. that now you've given up. You can either yeah. post essentially three quarters of a million, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and then you'll get the money back when the trial is over, or you post mm-hmm. essentially almost a hundred thousand dollars. And my dad was trying to get together a hundred thousand dollars to be a man. I said, don't even think about it. I got myself in here. I just wait. Give me a few days in here. Wait for it. And it, it worked out. The judge lowered my bail and, and my parents paid, you know, $5,000 or whatever to get me out. But there was a part of me that knew that that way of living ended. But I didn't know how to live any other way. Mm. I'd never developed skills to live like a normal human being in the street with all this stuff that was going to happen to you. Life is uncomfortable. Mm. Mm. And I never, really? the only way that I learned to deal with discomfort was by using something to numb out that discomfort. So... I got sent to rehab. My lawyer said, you have to go to rehab where the judge will send you away for a long time. So I went to rehab. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to stay sober, though. I didn't know how to stay abstinent. So they told me that's the thing I was supposed to do. I made it a month. I relapsed. They found out that I relapsed. They kicked me out. Oh, gosh. And I was living in my car. And in that experience, I realized that I have to, you know, I, I can't even depend on the rehabs anymore. I just, I have to figure out how to do this. And so mm-hmm. I found a so piece of did me. You, did you shift from... From like the external fixing the jail, the rehab, the you were so used to getting something from outside in that you mm. realized the time had come for you to go from inside out. Was that a shift that maybe happened? I think the life? realization of that truth happened almost five or ten years later. But mm. what happened was my father called. He he's passed now, but he used to call me every morning during when we were good we actually our relationship improved substantially after i got arrested because now they knew the truth i'd been hiding see here's the thing about hiding you think that you're doing a good job of covering up what's going on most of us do a terrible job of Mm -hmm. covering what's going on everybody knows we're struggling Mm -hmm. they just don't have the they don't have the tools or the knowledge of how to deal with your discomfort Mm -hmm. so they shy away they're ashamed of it as well Mm -hmm. and you don't have the wherewithal and the you know, the, yeah, the, the motivation of the driver, the self-belief to think that if you say something about your struggles, somebody will be there to help. So you're standing, it's like you're standing on two opposite sides of a river, wanting help, wanting to connect, mm-hmm. but nobody knows how to bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. So when I got arrested and my parents found out that I was a drug dealer and a drug addict and all this other stuff, it was the first time we had a real conversation in a decade. Wow. And it was really actually powerful but now i've been lying to them again etc so my dad calls me this morning the morning i got kicked out of that rehab and i had a whole set of lies just ready to tell him and i was in the middle of telling him that the rehab was too far from my work and i need to move in somewhere closer so i moved out and this voice inside said you know what you haven't had to lie to them for a long time like months just tell them the truth yeah and that was the first realization that Uh. the truth will be the thing that'll set me free was the first realization i had been lying Mm -hmm. for so long i just figured let me lie one more time. Mm-hmm. And he was buying it. So I told him the truth. He got incredibly mad, mm-hmm. obviously, because they'd spent yeah. money and time. And we mm-hmm. thought that was going to be the thing yeah. that saved me. And it didn't. So he was really frustrated. And he asked, what do you what do you expect me to do? You know, what am I supposed to do now? You throw away three months, $30,000, well, Gosh. more if you count the jail bond. And now you're going to go to prison for like half of the rest of your life. What are, mm-hmm. we, what are we doing? And it was the first moment that I realized mm-hmm. that and I told him, I said, you can't do anything. This is not about you. I have to fix this. And that was the switch. That was the switch. The switch was me taking accountability and me saying, you know what? I have what I need inside to fix this. Everybody else had always made it seem like I was damaged and so damaged that 
I wouldn't find the right tools because I was helpless. somehow... It made you feel almost like helpless. Yeah, helpless no and hopeless, right? Helpless. helpless because I didn't have the wherewithal, I didn't have the tools, I didn't have the strength to do it myself, which then created hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the thing about hopelessness is if I'm already screwed, if I'm already not going to get better, who cares? Exactly. What's who cares if I go to jail or use more or if I'm homeless? If it's all terrible, what's That's the work great. for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that moment was the moment that I took charge and I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to be myself. I got myself kicked out of rehab. I was the one that relapsed and used. I'm going to own it and we'll see what happens. And you said this really well and I want to own it. Mm-hmm. I used for another month. I was out. I didn't know where I was going to go next. I was living on Fred's couches and, you know, in my car. And But I found the next place. And here's the thing. It didn't matter what the next place was going to be. I wanted to find something cheaper so my parents mm-hmm. weren't spending as much money. And I needed to find something that would work. So I walked into a house and it was better and I was willing to do the work now. Mm, you were so, ready. So it didn't really matter what they did. I was there and I was ready. Got clean, Very went good. to jail, spent a year in jail. But when I came out of jail, I was ready for a new life. And that's why I was a 4.0 student. That's why I was able to get the PhD. That's why I was able to get to this place is I learned to deal with the pieces of my life, the factors, the elements, the discomfort, the, the challenges that life will throw at you mm. in a way that I never learned. Yeah. It's going to happen inevitably. You spoke about that you went to rehab and to jail. But there was, were you doing them at the same time? No. So I, I spent eight months in that second rehab. By that point, my trial, my court come, procedures yeah. had concluded. And um, the judge ended up giving me one year instead of 13 to 18 years because wow. I'd cleaned up. My mom still hates him for giving me a year. Even a year, yeah. But, you know, you know how mothers are, right? So she didn't want to see me in jail at all, but it was a gift. No. Wow. It was a gift. Going to jail was a gift. Oh. Talk about that. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, this was in 2002. In November of 2002 is when I got sentenced to a year. And you talk about it being dehumanizing and you've talk, spoken about it as being a gift. So that almost paradox. Mm. Well, first of all, the gift was this. I could have gotten 18 years and I deserved 18 years. Okay. And you got the one. Mm-hmm. You know, I... Sold drugs for five, six, seven years to hundreds, if not a few thousands of people. It's funny, right? People, you can you can judge all you want as I say this next piece. I was a good drug dealer. And what I mean by that is I didn't mm-hmm. cut my drugs. I didn't try to cheat people out of their money. Good value. <laughs> they, yeah, I, I give good value for people's money. But, you know, like I was giving people the things that were destroying their lives. And I knew it as it was destroying my life. So people would run out of money because they yeah. became too addicted and they had no money. And they would come and offer me necklaces or their car or things like that for money. And now I would send them away. I would say, you, you need you need to stop. But I was yeah. also part of what led them to that place. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have found somebody else to sell exactly. them if I wasn't there. But, you know, helping somebody destroy their life doesn't make you feel good when you get mm-hmm. back on the other side. So there was more than enough penance for me to, to pay. And so I... I wouldn't have been happy with 18 years. That would have, mm. I mean, again, we think about it, right? It's 20, 2020 just turned when uh, when we're speaking here. It was 2002. If I would have gotten 18 years, probably got a few years off on good time, I would have been out a couple of years ago. Yeah. And all the stuff I've done for the last 15, 16 years would have never happened. No. So, How many people are you now reaching to help? Yeah, thousands and thousands of people mm. that I've worked with. And my home family. I have a family. We're in my home. Like, yes. none of that would have been no. here if, if he didn't give me that year. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. But, and again, I talked about it earlier today in this workshop that I did. I don't talk about it too much in the book, but surviving jail for a year proved to me that I'll be fine no matter where I I am. Wow. Because 
It is dehumanizing. It's meant to be dehumanizing. You are meant to become a number. You're meant to understand and know at the deepest level of your being that you are worthless when you're in there. Mm -hmm. Anybody can do anything they want to at any moment. And technically, there are protections. Mm -hmm. But who are you going to talk to? Wow. You know, if a, happens, yeah. if a guard hits you over the head, who are you going to say something mm -hmm. to? You know, you're in a cell. He's a guard. He can say you try to attack him, mm -hmm. whether you try to run away. It doesn't matter. So you realize that very mm -hmm. quickly. And it, it becomes this controlled chaos, animalistic, zoo-like environment. And it's done on purpose. And again, wow. I, I mentioned this earlier today. For all the dehumanization part of it, the boredom is Ugh. immense. I mean, spending mm. four or five months where you just don't have anything to do. One of my New Year's resolutions is to work out more and stay more active. In order to maintain a regular workout routine, it's so vital to stretch and take care of your body pre and post workout. One of my secrets to helping my body recover and feel amazing is my Theragun, an easy to use and absolutely amazing handheld percussive therapy device. I use my Theragun before my Orange Theory workout classes to help wake up my muscles and after my workouts to help with muscle recovery and even during the day to help relieve any stress related to sitting or standing too long. I have already noticed a difference since using my Theragun device. Stiffness, knots and soreness are no longer issues. And just for my listeners, Theragun is offering an amazing deal. Visit www.theragun.com forward slash leaf and you'll get two free attachments with any purchase. The link will also be in the show notes. That's demoralizing. It's it's everything. As you said, yeah. demoralizing the whole lot. It's it terrible. is. So I remember the moment I walked out and I remember I, uh, when I was released, I said, I will do whatever I have to do to never go back into that place. Oh. And that was... It's got to be 2003, so it's got to be like the early 2003 when I got out, and I did, and I have ever since tried to do everything forward. that I could. What did you do when you were bored? What did you? How did you handle that? In jail, mm -hmm. I tried to write. They give you these pieces of paper and these really unsharpened pencils because you can't have sharpened pencils because then you could stab somebody <laughs> with them. So they give you these really, really dull pencils. I think I still have some of the writing somewhere around here, but I. I used to write music before I came in, so I would write songs and things like that in there. I would try to read. I've read some of the... I read romance novels. Because yeah. in the jail in L.A., you know, everybody watches prison shows. Mm -hmm. Have you ever watched any yeah, of like yeah. Orange is the New Black or mm -hmm. any of those shows? Prison is a place you go to when you've had a lot of time. So maybe you got five years or ten mm -hmm. years. You get your own bed and your own room and you mm -hmm. stay there for a while. Jail isn't like that. Jail is there when you spend less time... And so you get moved around all the time. You get a bag of stuff. That's all you mm. have with you. So the books, they just kind of make their way around. Okay. So sometimes you get half a book and you have to start the book in the middle. Oh, gosh. And it doesn't matter what happened in the beginning. You just, yeah. you literally try to do everything you can to yeah. just occupy your time. Wow. And the thing about jail is because it's this controlled chaos, you never know if you're going to run across somebody else who's right on the brink of losing it. Because that happens mm -hmm. to a lot of people in jail. It's not... I'm a lucky person, and I, I like talking about this now. A, I had the support of my family. Mm -hmm. So my dad would fly out from New York every other month at least, but probably every month to come visit me in jail. My parents, my mom couldn't, and my sister didn't either. I had a few friends from rehab that would come and visit me. 
So maybe once every other week, I would have somebody Coming to talk to. to. Yeah, and sure. it's that whole thing with the glass and the phone, all that. Yeah. But at least it's like a human being it's that context, you can talk it's to. Communication. So that happened. Plus, you know, my parents put money in my account so I could order the freaking Oreos or whatever yeah, cookies or whatever I wanted them. to eat. So that was a blessing. But besides that, as we sit here and talk, I'm a straight, white, upper middle class man. Mm-hmm. And that gives you advantages. There's the least of us maybe yeah. in jail. So it feels scary in some way because mm-hmm. of that. But also it gives you a lot of advantages. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize that. And I would meet guys, you know, Hispanic guys or black guys in jail who they had their life inside jail and their life outside jail. And they just kind of came to terms with it. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I was out for nine months this time. Or I was out for two years this time. They would That's how they would talk about wow. it. Like, like it was moving. Sad. And so I recognize the privilege in having that. But I... I talk to my parents a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can make collect calls that everybody knows in jail. But I made so many collect calls that my parents had to install a second line because they limit how many collect calls, how much money you can spend in a month per so line. So you restored your relationship with your parents. You reconnected with your base, basically. Yeah. Well, to go back to the beginning of the story, at the point where the rebellion happens, there are a lot of reasons. My dad cheated on my mom. He almost left us and then he came back. They moved me when I was 14 and that was not a great idea, but they didn't know and I didn't know. There was a lot of angst, a lot of resentment there. But when I got uncomfortable, I didn't let anybody see who I was, right? So from a young age, when I was socially awkward, Mm -hmm. I tried to put on this funny face and Mm -hmm. that left, that was gone. Mm -hmm. So I didn't need to pretend for anybody anymore. And that's a big thing I teach a lot of people is we keep trying to run away from who we are. And we believe that if we construct the perfect version of whatever we were told is perfect. The Pygmalion effect. The Pygmalion effect. Then we will be happy. Mm. But what happens is we then create this projection to other people of who we are. Mm -hmm. They start treating us as that person. Mm -hmm. We feel even more righteous in the notion that we're not enough Mm -hmm. because what they like is not us they like the thing we show Mm -hmm. them even though that's the thing we're choosing to show them Mm -hmm. and we get caught in this loop and now we feel like we have to live up to that standard Mm -hmm. that we created for ourselves you know the pigmalion effect is called so after a uh, mythological story about a sculptor who had sworn off women and created his perfect woman Mm -hmm. in a statue Mm -hmm. and he worshipped her so much and believed in her beauty so much that the gods gave him the gift of making her real. Mm-hmm. And so it's this projection of what this woman was created the reality. Mm-hmm. We all live in this projection of reality. Yeah. We just don't realize it. Mm-hmm. We think that what we were told is beautiful and skinny and worthwhile mm-hmm. is objectively what is all of those things. But they're just our projections of the truth. And mm-hmm. so what I realized in jail before jail as i was you know in that conversation with my dad is my job is to be the best version of myself that i can be mm. period Identity, yeah. with all the inequities with all the faults with all the strengths mm-hmm. and with all the goals that i haven't yet reached and i need to and the imperfections all of it together that's me mm-hmm. and to stop trying to run away from that and avoid it mm-hmm. and so even in jail I try to do the best version of doing that. Mm. And it's not the easiest thing because this is not exactly a conversation you have in jail. No. You don't sit around no. in jail. Talking was, about that, you had to do it in your own head or with your parents on the phone kind of thing. I would do it with my parents sometimes. I would catch up with my parents. You know, most of the white guys in jail with me were neo-Nazis. I'm Jewish. Gosh. That doesn't work well. No. So I would have to lie about my name. That was weird. 
because with a name like Adi, they they know you're foreign, so then mm-hmm. they would start questioning it. So there was still a little bit of like self-preservation that had to happen there. But when I got out of jail, I knew. I mean, if I could deal with that, yeah, I can deal with school. I could deal with work. I said to myself in a very clear sense, if I've got to go be a janitor, mm-hmm. it's all good. It's better than what I just experienced. Yeah. And so I went from a place where I was, I had a lot of money when I was selling drugs. I had two cars. I had two, I had a, an apartment, a recording studio and all this great stuff. I could travel and I was broke when I got out and I couldn't get a job. I could not get hired because now I'm a non-time convicted yeah. felon. Yeah. So again, privilege, right? My mm-hmm. parents were able to pay for my rent mm-hmm. while I was trying to get my stuff together. And mm-hmm. the only way was to go back to school. So I did the only thing that was available to me. And thankfully that opened up this brand new life. And you went back to school. Tell the audience what you did. It's amazing. Well, I went back to school because literally the application for Cal State Long Beach, which was a mid-tier university Mm -hmm. here locally in Southern California, they didn't ask the question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Mm -hmm. That was the only reason I went back to you that school. You couldn't get a job because every time you put that down, you couldn't get the job, but you got back to school. I went, I mean, that's by def- it was six, six or seven, eight months that I looked for a job. And thankfully, again, my parents were paying my rent, but I felt like a burden and I had to go do something else. The school didn't ask that question. I applied. I got in. They had a few makeup courses I had to do. And I got to tell you, you know, again, this is something that I preach to people. So I want to mm-hmm. talk about how mm-hmm. it landed in my life. Going from being a drug dealer who had four or five employees who you could tell anything to and they would do whatever you needed like if i needed to move from my apartment i would make a phone call and four guys would show up with trucks load up my my apartment move me to the new place put all my stuff in place and not ask a question if i needed when i was in a motorcycle accident i broke my leg and i was in the hospital i needed money for a down payment for the next apartment called one of my guys i need five thousand dollars in cash he brought five thousand my mom looked at him like who's this person who just randomly comes to the hospital and brings you five thousand dollars in cash I could do whatever I wanted. Going from that to going back in school was strange. It's weird sitting in a class and having somebody tell you how to yeah. do homework when in your head you're thinking, I don't need to do this. And you've this ego yeah. thing is happening. You're, but having gone to jail and being on the other side, I said, you know what? You've got to figure this out. You've got to get used to this new version of mm-hmm. life. And so I discovered this motivation to just do the best that I can in every single thing that I did. Mm. And I was a terrible student when I started college. Like I graduated with, I think, a 3.0, which is a B minus. That doesn't sound terrible to people, but it's not a good grade in college. Yeah. 3.0 average is, you're not going anywhere with that. Yeah. I graduated in the lower 50%, in the lower half of my high school. Yeah. You know, I barely made it out of high school, mm-hmm. but I found this motivation. And so mm. I was the student who organized the teaching groups and the, and the study groups. Mm-hmm. And I was the one who stayed behind to ask teachers questions and I had no social life but I read everything that I needed to read and did all the Mm -hmm. homework I needed to do and I literally had a 4.0 average I never got anything lower than an A at Cal State Long Beach and it nothing changed in my ability I was as capable as I was before what changed was my readiness to do the work Mm. even when it wasn't what I wanted to do even when it was uncomfortable Mm. right I was able to see past my nose Mm -hmm. able to see a month in advance six months in advance Mm -hmm. a year in advance and understand the worth and so I got through that program, got a 4.0. And the first semester, I got a scholarship that I didn't even know existed that paid for that school. Wow. So fortunately, finally, I was able to take that off my parents. That was one thing I could pay for. Six months after that, I got hired within the school for a, a research position. So now not only school was paid for, but I could pay for part of my rent. 
And then I graduated that program and had done well enough where these advisors and teachers there were willing to recommend me to go to the UCLA PhD program, which was one of the top PhD programs mm-hmm. in the world. And weirdly, I got in. I didn't think I would, but I got in. And then there was another part of the discomfort, right? Up to now, at least you can say my ego was being well-fed. I was a 4.0 student. I was the best student they'd ever seen in Castle Long Beach. I went to the best UCLA PhD program in psychology, wow. and I was average. Because wow. there are a lot of really smart people in the PhD program yeah. in UCLA. True. And I remember this moment where I had to think to myself, I'm like, oh, cr- I'm not the best student here anymore. And I remember the thought. There was a real discomfort. I was, I was kind of like, Maybe this is the right place for me. What what did I do? But you know what? Being average among some of the best people on the face yeah. of the earth is fine. And mm-hmm. I got through that program and I did well. And, you know, we're here now talking. But I ended up teaching at UCLA. I ended up teaching back at Cal State Long Beach. I did. I created a life after jail that nobody, not my dad who believed in me more than anybody else, not my mom who wanted me to succeed, not my sister who loves me like there's nobody else thought that I would create. And it all came mm. from a readiness to just do what's in front of me and a readiness to deal do what's with the in pain. Front of you. So you, that readiness to do what was in front of you came, took you from being a drug addict to a UCLA professor and studying in your actual field of addiction with, a, your, with the very problem you had, you've become an expert yeah. now in helping people get out of that. Yeah. You know, that's such a story of, of hope and you've spoken very clearly about how you did that. But the key thing I'm hearing you say is that you really had to accept who you were, find yourself. And you talk a lot in your book about some of your people that you've worked with. You talk about mm. Terry and yeah. you talk about the why, why, why. You Because you, people are – so talk, can you talk a little bit about why would sure. people go into substance abuse yeah. and how your your approach is different to the traditional approach? So we might want to just start with explaining what the traditional approach is and how yours is different. Yeah, 100%. So you said it perfectly well, right? You have to deal – just like I said, you have to deal with what's in front of you. You're the first thing that's in front of you. Mm-hmm. And but like it or not, you're not getting away from you. So I'm you disorganized. Like that's one of the things I talk about this a lot. I talked yeah. about it in my TED Talk. I am really disorganized. I almost missed my own TED Talk because <laughs> that's serious. I mean, I talk about it literally in the TED Talk because I was I went away to practice. It was 30 minutes, 45 minutes before yeah, the talk. I've done one too. I went, go, got a bit of time. I went yeah. to a room, they give you, you know, they give you your 12 minutes and you have to nail it. So I was in a room practicing the talk. I just forgot to tell anybody where I was practicing oh gosh, it. So, so they were running around trying to find me. And eventually this woman runs into the room. She goes, oh my, I found you. You're on in a minute. And we had to run up and they had to mic oh me gosh. really quickly. And I, the reason I tell that story is, yeah. look, I wish I was more organized. The invention of calendars on phones so good. is the best thing that's <laughs> ever <reminders>. happened. <laughs> we just went out. We're coming out of uh, the new year and holiday vacation. My schedule, if it's not set, if it's not the same every day, I miss every appointment. I don't, even the things that I organize myself, I don't make it to. It's always been that way. I lose keys. I lose stuff all the time. Yeah. I know that about myself. Mm-hmm. Look, I wish I could change it. Mm-hmm. I can't. I've done everything that I can. So what I can do is I can have tools manage and I can rely on other people. Yep, there you go. I hire, I, I'm the only drug dealer I've ever met in my life that hired an assistant. <laughs> I had an assistant as a drug dealer. It's so funny. Because I knew that I couldn't do this recognize your weaknesses Mm -hmm. and get a plan in place to manage them. Yeah. Don't feel badly about them. Mm -mm. What am I going to do about it? There's, this is part of who I am. 
Could it change? Maybe. Could I have done things when I was younger to make it better? Perhaps. But I've tried now for a decade. This is who I am. Deal with your reality and move forward in the best way that you can. And so I talk to people about this all the time. People come to me and they come with the solution that everybody else told them they need to have. Mm. What do I mean by that? Terry, you gave the example of Terry and I talk about her in the book quite a bit. She was a client who came to me, Orange County, wealthy. That's sort of like the Southern Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. of uh, Southern California here. Very wealthy family, well-to-do, couple of kids. She came and she right off the bat said to me, look, I'm an alcoholic. I have a really bad drinking problem. Mm -hmm. I've got a, I don't want to stop how to drink. And somebody told me that you can teach me how to drink less. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things I talk, my book is called The Abstinence Myth. I tell people, look, you don't have to quit to, to start mm-hmm. getting help. Let's yeah, just start really where you are. That's really important what you've just said. Yeah. Say that again. You talked about traditional treatment. Traditional treatment makes an assumption that you have to be ready to quit before you can get help. Mm-hmm. Even in AA, which is one of the most common systems mm-hmm. anybody knows to get help, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. It's in their bylaws. Mm-hmm. What if you don't want to stop drinking? Exactly. So if you don't want to stop drinking, you're not allowed in. Mm-hmm. Well... I have a newsflash for everybody listening right now. Nobody wants to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. People just want their life to get better. Mm -hmm. If you could promise every person who drinks heavily that they could drink the same amount and all the consequences go away, they would take you up on it in five seconds. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to stop drinking. They want the consequences gone. Mm -hmm. And what I say, and I did research on this at UCLA myself, the abstinence requirement is a huge barrier for people to get help. So what I tell people is you don't have to want to quit to come get help with me. You have to want your life to get better. That's so different. If you don't care it's, about your yeah. life getting better, I can't help you because mm. you're not going to want to do the things it's that right, I need you to do. Yeah. But if you want your life to get better and you're committed to that, keep drinking. If that's what you need right mm-hmm. now, we'll make your life better. And so that's the first thing. And, and mm. Terry came to me. So she wasn't ready to stop. And we talked and we did about three or four sessions. She would come in a couple of times a week. And then she ended up doing this intensive week that we were doing back in the day at Alternatives. By the second session... I said to her, what are we going to do about your marriage? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And it was incredibly obvious that this woman had been unhappy Mm -hmm. for about 12, 13 years in her life. Mm -hmm. And she always drank. It wasn't that she started drinking then. But when she became more unhappy, she started drinking more. And she would meet up with other moms. She married. She was a very popular sorority girl, married this amazingly Mm -hmm. beautiful guy who Mm -hmm. was very successful in business. Mm -hmm. And he traveled a lot, but, you know, she had her friends. Perfect life. It's perfect life. Exactly what you imagine, right? Like Mad Men kind Mm -hmm. of style, Mm -hmm. right? Beautiful home in Orange County, all the Mm -hmm. money in the world, all this stuff, you know, vacations. And then she had kids. Mm -hmm. And she didn't realize that this popular, fun girl would become the mom who would have to stay at home alone while Mm -hmm. her husband kept doing exactly what he did Mm -hmm. before. He was gone 90% of every week. So he would be home one or two days a week and keep traveling for business. Mm -hmm. She didn't realize it all fell on her. And with three kids eventually, Mm -hmm. she really didn't like her life. Mm -hmm. No more fun. The only quote-unquote fun she got to have was the mommy dates in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. So they would drink. They would drink at lunch. Mm -hmm. Initially, it didn't seem like a problem because it managed how much she hated her life. But then Mm -hmm. she kept resenting her husband more and more. Nobody talked about it. They never went to therapy. Now they're not talking. They're not having sex. They're not being intimate. Mm -hmm. They're not talking Mm -hmm. about what's happening in their relationship. Mm -hmm. And so he resents her more. She resents him Mm -hmm. more. And now... She's drinking constantly. Mm. Because imagine that, right? Just to deal with that life, you have to do a few She's things. Yeah, they have to fix the relationship, leave the relationship, or, or you have to cover it, it up. Cover it up, yeah. So she found a way and she covered it up. Her husband didn't care until 
he would come home and the one or two days a week that he was home, he'd see her get really drunk at dinner and it would bother him because nobody wants to put the kids down drunk. That's not exactly. something you want to do. No. But she was really resentful and anxious and hateful and she started drinking at lunch. So by nighttime, she's drunk mm-hmm. or passed out. And so he told her she had to cut down on her drinking and she tried and it didn't work. So she didn't want to show him that it didn't work. So she would go in the kitchen and have a little bit extra wine. Like she'd have the one glass with mm-hmm. dinner, but then she'd have one or two more in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And he found that out. Mm-hmm. So now I said, well, you're not allowed to drink at all anymore. No alcohol in the house, which now made him hate her even more because he liked mm-hmm. drinking. Mm-hmm. He had stresses at work too. So yeah. he liked drinking, but now no alcohol in the house. She tried. She couldn't. Mm-hmm. So now she hid alcohol, but now she went from wine to vodka because it's kind of hard to hide a bottle of like three bottles of wine in your uh, boots, but it's pretty easy to hide a small bottle of vodka. Yeah. And then all you need is a little sip. Mm-hmm. So now she literally became a closet drinker. I didn't even realize closet drinkers were a real thing yeah. until I met closet drinkers. Yeah. Where literally they would go in their closet to drink. And drink, yeah. They would hide vodka in wow. their closet and go drink. Eventually he found that out. And that's when the answer became clear to everybody. You're an alcoholic. Mm. That's why you can't stop drinking. You're an alcoholic. And now... Forget the marriage problems. Forget the parenting problems. Forget the fact that she gave up her career and didn't want, wasn't doing anything. Mm. Forget the fact that she was now a woman that had was, no life. She was labeled. She was an alcoholic. She went from soccer mom to alcoholic like that. And now everybody had a solution. So by the time she came to me, model. her thing was clear. Like, mm. I have this condition. It's called alcoholism. I can't control my drinking. Mm-hmm. Somebody told me you can make me better and I can drink in moderation. And I said, we're going to have to deal with <laughs> <Well>. your marriage. <laughs> Yeah. I can't help you until we deal with your marriage. What a crazy narrative, isn't it? That that model, that disease model. It's so... But these are all the people who come to yeah. me. Every single person who comes to me, it's the same story. I can tell you stories yeah. like this till the cows come yeah, home. I can, I can really a gay see. guy who was born in Texas in the mid-70s, and you're not allowed to be gay in Texas yeah. in the 70s. I mean, I don't think you're allowed to be gay in Texas no. now. But in the 70s, you definitely weren't able to. So in order to look like one of the guys, he just drank a lot. He started drinking a lot at the age of 12 because it made him behave like more of the guys and he could fool around with girls and pretend to have sex with them, even though he really didn't want to. And when you learn that you're that terrible of a person, that nobody will accept you as you are, how do you grow up without shame? So he became a blackout drunk. So all the stories are like this. Mm -hmm. And I talk about them in the the book Mm -hmm. because everybody comes saying, you got to help me deal with the alcohol problem. And and what I tell them is, I don't care about your alcohol. Tell me about your problem. So you're going to the root cause behind it. Always. The work that I do is always you've got to find the, take those emotional and physical warning signals and go and find why. Yeah. Otherwise, you know. All the time. If I don't know the why, I can't help you. You can't do anything. And the thing is a lot of people come to me and they don't know the why. So. They become experts at suppressing or hiding, convincing, the confirmation bias, you know, all that. All the the pygmalion effect, all those things, they become what they're not. And that makes them even worse and even so the confirmation bias that you talk about, I'll just mm-hmm. explain. I don't know if you've talked mm-hmm. about it before on the podcast, but our brain organizes the world into categories and explanations of why things operate the way that they do. And early on, we don't know any of this. So we organize it. We go, oh, you know, as a baby, you go, when I let things go, they fall down. Mm-hmm. So all things fall down when I let them go. And then that pretty much proves itself right the vast mm-hmm. majority of the time. So I can hold my book in my hand and I don't have to let it go. I know that if I let it go, it will fall down because mm-hmm. my brain has organized all the information in the world that way. And so like I, even with the ex- example with Terry, she was this beautiful, popular sorority girl. And then she became a mom and or a wife and then she became a soccer mom. Mm-hmm. All the explanations made sense because they all worked together. She mm-hmm. looked the part. She lived the part. She mm-hmm. acted the part. Mm-hmm. 
as soon as somebody switched to seeing her as an alcoholic, all the proof that she's an alcoholic was in the confirmation bias. Mm. That's why you drank like that when you were a sorority mm. girl. For that reason, it had to be an external reason, disease. And, and you make the reason the underlying explanation mm. for the confirmation, right? So, And then you've taken power away from the person to ever change anything. Well, you take power away from the person and you've created a world in which no matter what facts are presented, they can all be used to prove the underlying belief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is the big problem about the confirmation mm-hmm. bias. Mm-hmm. Look at the politics in the U.S. right now, right? Mm-hmm. Politics in the U.S. right now are the quintessential example of confirmation mm-hmm. bias. Mm-hmm. One person saying the exact same thing, mm-hmm. two sides hear it completely differently. Mm-hmm. Confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. So these people come to me and everybody has told them they're alcoholics for so long. Everybody has told them that they're mm-hmm. damaged for so long. Mm-hmm. They believe it. They believe Pygmalion effect that runs mm-hmm. together with other people. Mm-hmm. Other people see them acting out of sorts. Mm-hmm. It confirms that they're alcoholics. Mm-hmm. I have to really deconstruct that with them. And the main way that I get to why is curiosity. I tell people all the time, I just had this email from some Mm -hmm. parents earlier today. And when they asked me, what do we do with our son? This is what's going on. I said, stop giving him solutions and start asking him questions. Mm, So good. That's brilliant. Yeah. What's going on? Mm -hmm. How are you feeling inside? Mm -hmm. Why do you feel like this helps you? What what about drinking makes your day better? Why do you like smoking weed? Mm-hmm. There's a reason why your child yeah, is doing yeah. this. They're not doing this for no reason. I did it to fit in. Mm-hmm. My parents saw me drinking and they ignored it. They didn't know what to do about it. Start asking questions. Be curious. Mm-hmm. You will find out a lot of information that will be very useful in terms of guiding mm-hmm. the behavior mm-hmm. change. What I found is this. You eliminate people's barrier, which is you have to quit before you come to me. You start asking the questions they want to answer anyway. Mm. Why are you feeling uncomfortable? What do you want your life to look like? Why does this drug make you feel good? Why does watching porn make you feel good? All that stuff. Mm-hmm. And they have answers. They have stories. Mm. They have elements of their past that they can't wait to share because I'm not judging them mm. as less than. I'm not shaming them. They're not them. coming in with the, I've got a disease and get being given little sort of tricks, band-aids to try and fix yeah. it. You're actually making them dig for the reasons why. Yeah, they do they come in with the, in the, with the labels, but we, I really try to do my best to help them put those to the side. Yes. Like, don't call yourself an alcoholic anymore. Yeah. Stop calling yourself yes. an addict. I've said this for years, and, and I just get so challenged on it. But it's, you, well, as the whole thing, once an alcoholic, always, that's not the case because you can change things. Your brain changes according to how your mind works. So if you change your mind, you change your brain. All the you time. You change your life. I would so. even argue it's not that you can change. You're going to change. Mm-hmm. Whether you like, you're changing every moment. You're always You are changing. constantly changing. Exactly. You're always Here, Here's... For everybody listening right now, if tomorrow when you wake up, you remember one word of anything that I said today, your brain changed. Exactly. That's the only way that you are able to, exactly. I mean, you're a cognitive psychologist, you know this. The only way your brain is able to have memory is it physically changed. Mm-hmm. It created new connections in the brain mm-hmm. for that new knowledge. Exactly. That's the only way you remember. You're changing. Right now, as we're speaking, you're changing. Exactly. The only question I tell people is, are you going to take charge of what that change is going to be? I love that. What are you going to dictate what the change mm-hmm. is going to be? Or are you going to just kind of let it happen haphazardly mm-hmm. and allow the world to dictate what change will be? Mm-hmm. Like allow your mom who thinks that you, know, you need to stop drinking to dictate what the change is. Or allow the judge or allow your friend or allow your girlfriend. Are you going to allow them to control mm-hmm. where the change is or are you going to start taking control of it? Mm-hmm. So... I help people figure out the why. And then I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes it's really hard work. Yeah. You know, Terry and her husband got divorced. They, their relationship didn't make yeah. it. When she realized they needed help, she came to him asking for couples therapy. He wasn't interested. Mm. He's going to be on that. I don't know what was going on for him. Maybe he had somebody on the side. Maybe he was just he over it. I don't know. He was never my client, so I don't know the mm-hmm. answer to that question. 
but he didn't want couples counseling. So you know what? Their relationship was not going to last because mm. it couldn't, if it continued that way, she would continue she drinking. Would, yeah. So she ended up actually deciding to be completely abstinent. She decided on her own after the divorce that she needed to take a break from alcohol. Mm-hmm. A lot of my clients who come in for mm-hmm. moderation actually decide they don't want to drink anymore. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. I have zero stake in whether you drink or not. I just want your life to get better. Yeah. But it's always about the why. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Maybe you just need to talk to someone. I recently discovered Better Help and think they're an amazing solution if you are looking for professional help with your mental health. Better Help will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. That's trybetterhelp.com slash Dr. Leaf. And just for my listeners, get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link will also be in the show notes. So you've now gone through all of this process, you've got all this experience, and you've created a program called Ignite, and you've put that into your book, The Abstinence Myth. Yep. Can you talk about, in a simple, practical way, how this works absolutely so that someone who maybe has a loved one who is an addict or is battling with addiction of some sort what can a family member or a loved one do to help a loved one in this process one of the first things you have to do is you got to get rid of the language right when you call somebody an addict pygmalion effect Mm -hmm. confirmation Mm -hmm. bias you speak to them as somebody who is an addict and will always be an addict they understand that languaging they understand the emotion you're throwing their way the the energy that you're projecting towards them in terms of the expectations you have, and they will, they'll be more likely to play those mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So stop using the language. Mm-hmm. I have three principles that guide the Ignited program, and I'll start with those. And they are honest exploration, radical acceptance, and individualized transformation. I'll explain them, and then I'll explain how I put those into my work. Honest exploration is finding out the why. Mm-hmm. If you don't know why you're having the feeling, if you don't know why you're creating the behavior, if you don't know where in life you learned this and where these patterns started, pause and go back and start looking for it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just stories. And you say, oh my God, when I was younger and I would get anxious, my dad would always take me to the back and let me have a beer when I was 14 because, you know, he knew that it would calm me down. I didn't even think about it, but that's when I first got exposed to alcohol. One of my clients was throwing up all the time in school when she had athletic meets or a debate team meets and one of her friends one day she would literally throw up before each one of those the bus knew not to start going until she got to throw up and then they would go to the meet one of her friends one day walked up to her and said hey um if you take a little smoke of weed it'll stop your nausea it worked Mm -hmm. and she started smoking weed every day after so she never dealt with the anxiety so Mm -hmm. she didn't even remember that until we started looking at it look for the stories in the past Mm -hmm. honest exploration principle number one most people want to fix they want the band-aid first Mm -hmm. They go, I'm anxious, I'll go meditate. I'm depressed, I'll pick something that I'll take an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Figure out why first. 
Very good. Mm-hmm. After people figure out the why, now they're really happy to jump into mm-hmm. tools. And I say there's one, one thing you've got to do before you step into the tools, and that is acceptance. Remember we talked about in the beginning? Mm-hmm. If there are parts to yourself that you're not okay with, that you're rejecting, mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard to get to a place eventually mm-hmm. in life where you feel okay about yourself. Because mm-hmm. you will always say, well, I'm okay except for this part. Mm-hmm. So I don't care how badly your life had gotten out of whack. I don't care how out of sorts you are right now. How, I don't care if you've ended up in jail or involved in crime or disowned by your family. You have to accept what you've done up until now to let land in this location. And what I mean by that is I tell my people all the time, you've done your best. Maybe you didn't have the best tools. Maybe you didn't know exactly the path you need to take, but you've always been trying your best to get here. And this is where it got you. Mm-hmm. When you can accept that, it releases a lot of the mm. shame. Well, that's, very, that's very important that you've done these things to try and get acceptance. So even if it was all the wrong pathways, you've got accepted. That's what you've been doing to this point. And now from there, you can move forward. Yeah. Look, mm-hmm. you learn how to do math. You learn how to tie your shoes. You learn how to walk and ride a bicycle with help. Somebody guided you on how to do that. Mm. My guess is nobody guided you how to deal with your social anxiety when you were 12. Mm. A, because they didn't know you had social anxiety. B, because your parents were probably not great at talking about feelings anyway. Mm-hmm. And your friends were 12 and they were not really equipped to deal with mm-hmm. this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So they gave you tools like have a drink. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with you because of that. You're not an addict. You're not an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. You dealt with the tools that you had at the time to solve Mm -hmm. the problems Mm -hmm. you had at the time. And the thing is here, it's worked. It just worked for a certain amount of time and it stopped working. So acceptance is Mm -hmm. the middle part. And now, once you've realized why you have the problem and you've accepted it, you're ready to start changing it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was saying. Like when I was back in school, I felt discomfort because a teacher is telling me what to do. And I'm there sitting going... I don't have to do what you tell me. Who are you to tell me what to do? And then I stop and go, wait, this is just that inside voice mm-hmm. of mine rejecting the discomfort yeah. of having else some, having somebody else tell me what to do. This is something I have to deal with. This has nothing to do with the teacher. I mm-hmm. can do the work internally that I need to to adjust that. So individualized transformation and then going and finding the tools that you need. Now, that sounds simple. It is. It's pretty simple, right? Honest sure. exploration, radical acceptance, individualized transformation. We have the book which lines specific exercises and and methods for you to be able to, to do dig in and do each one of those and through nine different steps. And I have stories explaining mm-hmm. how that's worked for other people. I've also created an online course called the Ignited Hero Program. I call it the Ignited Hero Program because I have come to acceptance. And so I know that inside every person who's suffering, there is a hero. hero. Mm-hmm. My job is to accept that of them mm-hmm. and then show them that hero. So the Ignited mm-hmm. Hero Program is a big one. And that essentially takes everything in the book and lays it out where I guide you individually through that process. It's really amazing. We've developed such a cool program. You have accountability coaches that call you every week to make sure you're doing the work. We have weekly online groups. People literally do them from their phone, from work or from home. So you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars Mm. to do this work. And then you asked a really amazing question a little bit ago, which is what if you're not the one struggling, but you know somebody who's mm-hmm, struggling. Mm-hmm. How do you get them to the yeah, place? Yeah, that's a big one. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's difficult is because, I'm sorry to say this to you as you're listening right now, mm-hmm. but you're also part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be that glib about it, but it's also yeah. true, right? We live in systems. Mm-hmm. And the system that created the problem sometimes has a hard time solving it. Mm-hmm. And so actually this year, in February of 2020, we're going to launch the Family SOS program. Mm. And the Family SOS program, I have a workshop named that online right now, and you can find that. But the Family SOS program is going to be 
like my Ignite a Hero program, mm-hmm. a program for the family members. Mm-hmm. Because here's the beauty. When you change the system, the members of the system change. So you can mm-hmm. help the people in your life create change. You just have to change what you're doing and the how system do you within do that? which Could they you feel. give a little bit of a... 100%. 100%. People respond to consequences and, and boundaries mm-hmm. around them. Mm-hmm. We all do. It's just that most families have mm-hmm. learned to live in pretty dysfunctional systems of boundaries and mm-hmm. consequences. Mm-hmm. So either they have no boundaries and yeah. you can do whatever you want, which causes one set of dysfunction, or you're so controlled and so full of consequences and boundaries that nobody can do anything and then they rebel against that. Mm-hmm. Or the most common thing that I see is you oscillate between those two. You or have, someone's also taking your consequences away from you, fulfilling trying to fix it for you instead of you doing well so a lot of times when in systems where there are no boundaries the family will step in to fix everything for yeah, you yeah. right oh well oh you can do whatever you want you didn't show up to school i'll call in and pretend you're sick mm. guaranteed if you're a parent you've done that for a child yeah. who's struggling right now mm-hmm. you've called in for them and said they're sick they're not really sick yeah but you want to take care of them what were you doing you were withholding natural consequences mm-hmm. from them so one of the things that you have to do is figure out how to put in boundaries that are relevant to you mm. and hold them in a consistent mm-hmm. manner. It's the consistency is hugely important. Mm-hmm. But then when I say that, a lot of people hear the, the words tough love. That's not what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. I'm talking about responsible, intimate love. I'm talking mm-hmm. about holding the people in your life accountable for what makes them responsible. Now, on the front end of that, what you have to do though is you have to change the conversation. Mm-hmm. We've gotten so used to living in these dysfunctional system where you say things to your loved ones like, you're a loser. You'll never be anything. What have you done with your life? You're an addict. You're an alcoholic. You're going to be like this forever. Mm-hmm. Listen to the first part of the conversation we've had here today. Mm-hmm. Saying that, believing that yourself, understanding their struggle in that way makes their struggle worse and mm-hmm. makes it more likely that it'll last forever. So I have to change the way you see addiction. Mm-hmm. By changing the way you see addiction, you get to have different conversations with them, even as you have boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I'll give an example. I had a, I have a family I've worked with for a while now. And their loved one, a kid, I mean, he's not a kid, he's 27 years old, but was a heavy, heavy opiate user Mm -hmm. for about five years. Tried multiple rehabs, tried alternative medication like ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and all these things to Mm -hmm. do everything. Nothing worked. Mm -hmm. They came in here. I saw him once a week. I saw the family once a week. I had a lot of deep communication with them. Within three weeks, we had him off the pills. And now we're about two and a half, three months into the process and he's applying to go back to school wow. and, and starting to find work. So what did you do? I had to completely change the way they interact mm-hmm. with one you another. Change the system, okay. I had to teach the mom how to talk to the kid, how to talk to the husband about the kid's struggles. I had to teach the kid what is okay to ask for and what is not okay. I had to have them have consequences. Mm-hmm. There were two weeks in the middle of these two months. It sounds really nice when I summarize For two weeks, this kid hated me. Mm. hated me, would send me these messages like, I don't want to talk to you, stop communicating with me. I said, that's fine. You can do whatever you need to do. I'll be here if you're ready again. And his parents held the consequences. So he ended up coming back. But like change causes friction and friction causes discomfort. You have to be okay with the discomfort. It's going to come. That's a big key one, being okay with the discomfort. Do you mind maybe giving an example, just one example, like really practical example of of that situation? Yeah, yeah. I'll give give a couple of examples. I'll give an example that's going to sound insane to everybody listening because it'll prove to you how sometimes the path to where you want to go 
goes through areas that you would never expect you'd have to go through. So this kid was using about 30 to 40 Oxycontin pills a day. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's really wow. expensive. Wow. Secondly, pretty, pretty wealthy family, but pretty expensive. And he's got to go to drug dealers all the time to get it because mm. no doctor is prescribing no, 30, 40 true. Oxycontins a day for yeah. you. His tolerance was that high. The family had tried to get him to stop over and over and over. And every time he would stop, even the ayahuasca ceremony, these things that they would do, he would stop. Yeah. And then within days or a week or two, he'd be back. Back again, yeah. When they came to me, I said, okay, well, what if we don't stop? Let's say we don't stop. How many pills do you need a day to feel okay? And he looked at me like I was insane. Yeah. The parents looked at me like I was crazy. And he came up with a number, and the number was six. And for him, the number was six because he figured out in his head, if every four hours I could have at least one pill, then I'm not going to feel the nausea and all the craziness that I'm going to feel withdrawing. I said, okay, well, what if we went down to six pills? And he's thinking, oh, my God, I don't have to quit. And the parents are thinking, well, six is better than 30. And then it got really crazy because I said, but you can't talk to dealers anymore. We got to cut the dealers out of the equation. So that means your parents have to get the pills and they have to give it to you. Mm, okay. That means he would have to wake up yeah. in the morning, take the pills. His parents would have to know how many pills he's taking. Mm-hmm. They're uncomfortable because they don't want him to take any. Mm-hmm. He's uncomfortable because he has to come to his parents and ask for them anytime. He doesn't want his parents to know mm-hmm. that he's using Very drugs. Good, yeah. Everybody's uncomfortable. But he's using six pills a day. And change is happening. Change is very uncomfortable. And for a week or two, everybody knew that that's how much he was using. They'd never known how much he was using. Nobody knew that. Now, we talked about we're going to slowly reduce. Mm. When it came time to go down to five, he was really unhappy. He wanted to stay to a six. Mm. Those were those two weeks that were really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. So every day I would be talking to them and adjusting and he'd be mad. And, you know, one one day went off the rails and he came back the next day and, and adjusted. And we went down to five for about a week and he got uncomfortable. And that was when he was willing to make the jump to say, you know what? Forget it. Let's just stop all of the pills. Mm. So then we started looking at three different options to completely stop. But here's the difference. Three weeks earlier, the last thing he was willing to hear was I need to completely stop. Now he was looking for a way to stop. He's like, you know what? I don't. That's the complete reconceptualized process. Which they never thought he'd be ready for. Mm -hmm. So in about three weeks of pretty intensive friction full work, we got him to the point where he wanted to stop. This episode is sponsored by Lola, a female-founded feminine care brand. Lola's tampons, pads, liners, and cleansing wipes are all made with 100% organic cotton. No toxins, no dyes, or synthetic fibers. I personally loved how convenient Lola makes it when ordering these products and how I could personalize my package to what I needed. Lola offers two trial sets, each featuring a mixed assortment of period products for just $5. Lola will send you a reminder email before your subscription officially starts. So it's a risk-free way to try the products before making a monthly commitment. This is truly a brand made for women by woman. It's never been easier to try Lola. Get started with a trial set today. Get 30% off your $5 trial set today. Visit mylola.com and enter Dr. Leaf to redeem your offer. The link will be in the show notes. It's been two months now. He hasn't used any more opiates. Again, I'm not going to lie to you guys. There's still a long way for him to go to get life where he wants to. But he's He's applying back to graduate schools. These changes. I mean, he's in here with me every day, every week, doing work to get himself where he wants to. He's 
completing things. He still doesn't know how to deal with heavy duty discomfort, which is where we're getting to. Mm-hmm. But it's only but been it's two a, and a half months. Exactly, it's a it's a process, and we change in cycles of three weeks, and it takes sixty three days to form a new habit at least. And so there's that time factor, which is where you started in the beginning as well. We spoke about it; didn't it just happen overnight? It's yep. a time thing. So the mom now texts me and says, "Look." Here's what's happening right now. We're incredibly happy. This is a million times better than it was two months ago, but we're worried about A, B, and C. And I said, cool. Well, now we can deal with A, B, and C. But those things weren't even relevant when your son was passed out in bed all day doing Oxycontin. So how much better is life right now? And Mm. that's what I teach the families is don't buy into the BS that you hear out there all the time, which is they're never going to get better. They can get better. 100%. It's just going to take some work. Mm. And some of the work will make you feel really weird. But this is making you feel much, much worse. Mm. So I always like this analogy of everybody likes the path of least resistance. I have no problem with the path of least resistance. But sometimes the path of least resistance for you is not the path of least resistance for your loved one. Mm. So we're going to have to figure out some compromises, is, yeah. you know, to make it, to talk it uh, you know, the sort of a, an environment we can all live in. And then I teach families how to communicate better. I teach them how to put boundaries in place. I teach them what the path is going to look like Mm -hmm. and how to be supportive when things are moving in the right direction, even though they're not where you want them to be. Mm. Because that's a difficult one. I see where their son is going to be in a year or two, but they're seeing where their son is this morning. Mm. And where he is this morning might not be a happy place for them. Mm, So so how do we get the whole family to think long term and in that time frame? versus, hey, you just did something to make me mad, you're back to being worthless addict who will never be anything and will never amount to You change the conversation, you change the narrative of how they're seeing it. Wow, this is incredible. I could listen to you all day and talk to you all day and you're running out of time. And I just, uh, I wanted to just, can can you, there's about 500 things I want to ask you still, but we've got time (laughs) for like two more questions. Sure. Can you give us a practical how-to tip, pearl of wisdom, for someone who is an addict? What would be your mm. kind of like sum up statement of, you've said a lot, but could you sum it up as sort of one sure. sort of pearl of wisdom statement? Sure, sure, sure. So I'll I'll do it with a summary of a topic that I dedicated a chapter to in the book, and then I'll go a little bit deeper in that. People fight all the time about what addiction is. Yeah. They say it's a biological disease. They say it's a psychological response to trauma. They say it's an environmental thing, right? If you listen to Johan Hari or the Rap Park studies, it's not even about your biology mm-hmm. or your psych- or your mm-hmm. trauma. It's just about your environment. People talk about spirituality, right? You're mm-hmm. you're out of sorts. You're not connected to God, etc. People have been fighting about the cause for addiction for about a mm-hmm. hundred years. Here's a secret: there is no single cause for addiction. There is nothing that's true for Joey in the same exact way that it's true for Terry or for uh, Melissa or for Emin, mm-hmm. right? Each one of you listening right now has a somewhat unique mix of those four factors mm-hmm. that is important for you. And just mention those four again. Biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality. Now, everybody knows that those four are important. That's not mm-hmm. the thing that I'm adding to the mix. What I'm saying is there is no universal truth about which one is most important. Mm-hmm. For There's you, no formula, in other words. Zero formula. It's an individual case study. You have time. to figure out the mix that is right for you. Now, mm-hmm. in saying that, if you think about it, that means there are thousands or tens of thousands of different varieties of quote-unquote addicts that's why i think the term is so useless you think that when you say addict you mean something but you don't you're just describing something yeah like it's a categorical description it's even like chair right like when i say chair everybody gets a picture in their head of a chair but there are thousands of different kinds of chairs Mm. so a chair doesn't necessarily have four legs and a back exactly it doesn't even though that's probably the idea the most of you guys Mm. like a flat surface with a back Mm. and four legs 
there are tens of thousands of varieties of chairs that don't have anything like that look. This is what you're doing to somebody when you describe them as an addict. It's what you're doing to yourself when you describe mm. yourself as an addict. You take people's ideas of what an addict is and you put them on yourself. Mm. Stop it. Mm. Stop it. Go back to the drawing board. You are much more knowledgeable mm. about yourself than people are letting on. Understand what is the mix for you. What environmental, psychological, biological, and spiritual problems are you experiencing? What in your genetics is causing you discomfort? What in your environment is making things worse? What in your past and your traumatic experiences mm-hmm. is making things worse? And then spirituality, right? Are you lacking purpose? Do you feel disconnected from society? Mm-hmm. Are you are you feeling like you don't understand why you're here? All those elements. Kind of figure out a rough balance of your mix. And then it's your job and your job only. Nobody else is responsible and nobody else can do this for you to go out and find tools that help fix those problems. You fix those problems and your addiction will go away. That's it. And mm. and it requires support systems. It requires, you, you've got to do it, but it's within community. I always use the example of Frodo and Sam in mm. Lord of the Rings. You know, that, that Frodo says to, I mean, Sam says to Frodo, I can't carry your ring, but I can carry you. Mm. And you've just, you know, you've just said that. You've got to carry your ring, but, you know, we'll carry you kind of thing. So Absolutely. Mm. And in the context of that, there are a lot of different kinds of support groups. So find one mm. that connects for you and feels right. That could be 12-step, it could be smart recovery, it could be life, there, there are a lot of different options for it, it could be ignited. What happens if they go to Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that and, and they're doing, they get, they've got to stand up and say, I am an addict, how would you give them a practical, such, in their mind, they might have to say that to be part of the group, but they... Such a not. good question, it's such a good question, I mean look, I'm now at a place where I can walk into one of those meetings and if that's what they need me to say, sometimes I'll say it just... Just to keep the peace. To to kind of acquiesce to the system without taking on the meaning. But mm-hmm. I, I can't do it for a long time because no. I feel like I have to stand up for myself. And so be cognizant of your level of comfort, right? I've heard now from people in AA, for instance, that they walk into the room and say, I am a person in recovery. I like that. Yeah. And if, if, you're, if the group doesn't let you do that and that's what you're comfortable saying, find another group. This is not about fitting in people. This is about fixing your life. This is about allowing you to get to a place where you're happy when you wake up in the morning and you feel pretty darn good about where your life went when you go to sleep at night. Those are the times that are going to matter for you, right? That's the time when that inner critic is so, so loud in our mm-hmm. in our head. So there are no quintessential tools that are effective for everybody. We all end up with our own toolkit. Like think of yourself like a carpenter, right? What is the toolkit that you need to mm-hmm. build the house, the life that you want? And your job is just to go out and find those tools. And so if you eliminate the notion that you are an addict and an alcoholic and that that even means something Mm -hmm. and instead focus on what am I struggling with and how do I fix that? Mm -hmm. I guarantee over time your life will get better and then the addiction will just go away. What am I struggling with and how do I change that? So it's up to you as the person to obviously get the support you want, but it's up to you as the person to make that decision. Incredible. Yeah. Last question. What keeps you awake at night and what gets you up in the morning? Hmm. At this point, impact is the thing that keeps me awake at night. I have a goal of helping a million people beat their addiction. We're about, I think, like 12,000 people in. So I've got a long way to go. I love that. I love you said that on another um, podcast. I heard you say. So a million people is the goal, and I really want to do that. I also work with my wife with couples, so we do a lot of impact work around that. That's what keeps me up at night. What's the other one? Wait, what gets you excited when you wake up in the morning? I mean, again, the work, the work really, really gets me excited. I get, I catch a lot of flack. It sounds like you do too, <laughs> but I catch a lot of flack for not acquiescing to the typical way of doing yep. work. So every 
two days, every day sometimes, I get an email or a message from somebody who's been impacted. And those things keep me going for That's at right. least another 24 hours, sometimes a whole week, depending on the That's email. Wonderful. So... Those are the things that keep you me going. You know they help. Oh, that's incredible. How yeah. can people find out more about your work? So we start a website called adjaffe.com just because everybody would remember my name at the end of one of these things and not anything else. So um, <laughs> A-D-I-J-A-F-F-E.com, adjaffe.com. You can find me on Instagram really easily, mm-hmm. Dr. Jaffe. And then if you can remember Ignited, I-G-N-T-D.com, you could find us there. And we'll well. put all those links in the show notes as awesome. well. You've been incredible. I could talk to you all day. It's just amazing well, information. It's hopefully exciting. this is the last time. I hope not as well. I'd love to have you back on the show yeah, again. Thank you incredible. so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so authentic and open. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.